Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Once again, wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, with co-hosts Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with American countertenor Christopher Lowry to discuss the moment he knew he wanted to be a countertenor to find out who discovered him while he was singing in a choir in England and to geek out about Handel. And then this week is the official midpoint of the calendar year in Chalk Talk. We look back at the important stories of the first half of 2019 and make a few predictions for how the remainder of the year in opera will conclude. Plus, in the two-minute drill... John Adams lands in Germany, Dominique Meyer leaves Austria, and Switzerland is neutral as always. And of course, you can call us on air, get your voice heard, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. This is a great night to call, 847-866-9687. You know what today is? Oh, Oliver, no, what is today? Today is the first day of Wimbledon. Uh, Ooh. The uh, all uh, all England club, uh, where I will be married one day on this, on Centre Court. <laughs> uh, I have bad news for those of you who are following. Oh uh, yeah, I read about this. Venus Williams was taken out in the first round by a 15 year old American Jeez. in Coco Golf. Yikes! Uh, and Venus Williams is like her idol, so it it's very poignant and. I was watching the press conference afterwards, and Venus had nothing to say. <laughs> yeah. Bless her heart. And my husband, Stefanos Tsitsipas, the Greek god, also was eliminated <laughs> in the first round. Now I don't have to watch this tournament. <laughs> well, you know no. what I'm going to be watching? Um, a women's World Cup coming up in a couple of days against England, only uh, only like like mere moments before July 4th. So I'm very excited for when the women are going to uh, fight back against England and achieve American uh, independence That's again. That's in the semifinal. Of course, of all of our fans and listeners... The first person to point this out to me was my son, who said, How, you did a whole radio <laughs> he's, show. He's one of our fans. And listeners. <laughs> he's one of the 10 that listened Taking to the, the show. Men's World Cup. This was last summer. Taking the Men's World Cup and then doing like an opera playoff based on those teams. But, but he said, but daddy, you're not doing that for the Women's World Cup. You're part of the problem, George. No, I was like, you patriot. know what? I was like, go, go away. Just, just beat it, all right? Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Sopper Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM.
am. Christopher Lowry has established himself as an American countertenor who has performed on distinguished venues such as the Glyndebourne Festival, Opera Royale de Versailles, La Fenice, and the Göttingen Handel Festival. He made his company debut with Boston Early Music Festival last month where Oliver cornered him and demanded an interview. Is that really true? <laughs> yes, it's true. No, so I heard him... Uh, in the Stefani opera, Orlando Generoso, and the whole cast was great, but I'd never heard of Christopher Lowry, and I was like, what? Who is this guy? And so, um, because Boston Early Music Festival is, like I said, it's like a love fest, I saw him just like, you know, in the cafeteria, you know, it's like, and I was like, I need to talk to you. This has got to happen. We, I, I need you for my show. And he was very nice. Uh, but before we join uh, our conversation, before we listen to our conversation, let's listen to Lowry uh, singing an excerpt, excerpt from an opera by Handel called Flavio. Um, and I'll say right now, his website's down. He's working on it. But if you go to his SoundCloud page, look up Christopher Lowry, L-O-W-R-E-Y, and, and SoundCloud. He's got some great clips up there. This is Rompoilacci. So I notice that you're American. You're right. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Don't count it against yeah. me. <laughs> but you are your career right now is abroad. You're you're living in England. And I have to say that you are living my dream life. You moved to the UK to pursue um, master's degrees or, you know, post undergrad education. And you were singing like in Cambridge in when you, you love choral music, apparently. So can you just tell us a little bit about like how you got to the UK and, um, you know, your love of choral music? Sure. Yeah. Um, I started in the Catholic church and I sang in the church choir, but I discovered on TV all this wizardry that they do in the UK. Um, they have an incredible choral tradition there at the collegiate and cathedral and also professional mm -hmm. levels. Um, and I just knew I had to do it. Um, so I bided my time, did my undergrad here in the States, and then I zipped off to Cambridge to sing uh, with the choir of Trinity College in Cambridge under Stephen Layton for a couple of years. And I have a church job, which I still uh, do right now when I'm not working um, in London at the Temple Church. And I used to do a lot of choral gigging before my solo career became bigger. And it's still my first passion and um when i'm in the states with free time i conduct my own small consort group and sing with them as well it's called ensemble altera 
And here in the States. Here in the States, yeah. We're based in Providence, and it's singers from the Providence and Boston areas. We're doing some concerts in July, um, one in Cambridge, Mass., and one in Providence. So I'd like to keep those chops uh, going as much as I possibly can. And you you decided to switch to countertenor when you were still in high school. So this is... Yeah, it took some convincing. My teacher didn't really buy it for a little while. And um, in fact, I had a short uh, audition prep for Cambridge with a a former King's College choral scholar. And um, it was during that audition that he heard me sing alto and he, he, he said, this is your voice, you know? And I sort of gave side eye to my teacher at the time and conspiratorially we decided it was time. But did, I mean, how did you even know that countertenor was a thing that young? How did I know? It's like, I feel like it's like kids coming out earlier and earlier in high school or like even in grammar school. It's like, oh, I'm like gender non-binary and I'm like 10 years old. You know? Well, it's funny you say that because I felt I was really late to figure out what countertenor was, but it, it really was watching um, these old episodes of a TV show um, that came on the Religious Network called In Concert, hosted by Dr. Jacqueline Leary Warsaw. And they they played in syndication almost these old um, Dutch TV recordings of the various Cambridge College choirs. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw, I watched a lot of Clare College, who was under Tim Brown at that time. This is sort of mid-90s, and it was a real golden period. I had no idea. And I thought, what is this sorcery? How can these 22, 23, 24-year-olds, or younger, sing like that? And um, there was a a pretty famous uh, recording that they had on TV, which was of the the Henry Purcell um, Te Deum and Jubilate Deo. Mm -hmm. And the Te Deum is like 20 minutes long, but it's endless um, solo verses interspersed with Mm -hmm. full, full choral verses. And each of the solo verses has various forms of countertenor singing. Yeah. And I remember listening um, to that and, and watching. In fact, the countertenor, the two countertenors on that recording are Peter Gritton, who is the uh, younger brother, I think, of Susan Gritton, who now takes the boys, I think, at the Abbey, um, teaches the boys, and Larry Zazzo, who's another American countertenor yeah. who relocated to Europe. Um, and it's recording of... Um, songs by, I forget who, Dowland, but he has like a saxophone. As that's well. right. Yeah. I think it's called Bird Song or yeah, something like that. I was going to say yeah. Bird, but I was like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and I and I just thought, oh my God, that sound is so incredible. Um, okay. And I sort of forgot about it for a little while. And then I was in a Borders Books, and I don't know if you remember, like back in the day, I'm, yeah. I'm dating myself, but they used to have these little CD racks where yeah. you could go and... You know, they'd have a featured you CD. You scan and, it and, like... Yeah, like, exactly. A little bit of it, yeah. Exactly. And, and one of the CDs that you could scan at one point when I was in high school was the King's College recording of the... Uh, I think it was the Vivaldi Gloria and the birthday ode for Queen Anne, which okay. had Robin Blaze singing. And I just... I, I started playing the first track, Eternal Source of Light Divine, yeah. with Robin, not really knowing what I was in for. And by, like, the second phrase, I swear my spine melted. I just drooped down the counter and sat and listened like a little boy, you know, in a sweet shop. And I just thought, that's like a true moment. In your it life. was really a moment. And I thought, what, I have to do this. Okay. I mean, I'll never be as good as this, yeah. as Robin, but I have to do this. So I may not include this in the, in the edited cut of this interview, but I'm going to ask you now, do you feel that 
discovering the countertenor voice and like getting a peek into these choirs from these you know old tapes and like this listening to Robin Blay sing Purcell or Handel does that have anything to do with queerness? Well, and did you feel like I discovered something that's like I wasn't I wasn't supposed to see this, but I found it? You know, it's an interesting question. I'm not really sure I know the answer. Um, It would be tidy if I could tell you that yeah, and then as soon as I heard that, everything you know blossomed. But I guess they were kind of. Uh, concurrent, you know, like it was that period of time. I mean, when you're when you're that age and into college age, and everything is new to you, everything is a discovery, including yourself. I mean, yourself is kind of like the last thing that you discover, yeah. almost, you know. Yeah, I do remember when I left home and I and I went to college. I I spent my undergrad years at Brown, and that whole period of time, you know, I came out just before I went to college, and um, and like I just remember everything being new, everything being subversive. It was like, what are these, of course, who are these countertenors? What is this glorious choral music? What is this amazing early music, yeah. you know, and on period instruments? All of that was like almost rebellious. Yeah. What are what are all these amazing independent films? This foreign language, was all this yeah. stuff that, you know, in my little, you know, in my suburb growing up, we didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah. We didn't pay attention to any of that stuff. Um, I mean, I had an amazing youth that, but at that period in my life, it was just like, everything was like a feast. Every week there was something, I would, I would lasso, corral people into my dorm room, you know, and this was pre-YouTube, I think, and it was just like, oh, listen to this, listen to, I mean, I had these physical CDs, and I would pop one out of the tray, and the next one in, and it was just like, you know, it would be 11, gone midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and people like, I have to go to bed, and I would just say, one more, you've got to hear this, Uh you know. I used to, like, trap people in my car and make them listen to, like, Barbara Hendricks singing at Carnatus Est. And, like, they were like, please let me out of the car. <laughs> like, no, but, ca- but cars are great. I still use... I, my, my dear friend Pierre and I, um, who was my my first singing teacher here in the States and who's a really close uh, family, dear, dear, like family to me now, friend, um, you know, every time one of my new recordings comes out or some new recording that, you know, we want to listen to, it, you intensely listen to, you know, um, we go in his car and drive around yeah. or, or, or park the car yeah. somewhere, you know, um, because you're surrounded by everything and you, you're really concentrating just, yeah. just on, on the sound. So it's a great way to listen to CDs. Well, I promise I'll get off the topic, but I just want to share with the listeners that the, I think the aria that did it for me when I was like 15 years old, I got some recording off the sale rack, uh, of Rose records. I remember Rose records, but, um, I don't know if they had it all over the place, but it was in Chicago as a chain mm-hmm. was Handel's Messiah conducted by Colin Davis. Uh, and it was Helen Watts singing, but who may abide. Wow. And you know, nowadays, like she's not exactly, you know, quintessential Handelian mm. style, but back then, like that was pretty good, you know? Sure. And I just remember hearing her shift into, into chess voice. <laughs> in some of the color tour past in the cadenza. I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> what is that noise? I'm like feeling like a whole new world was like opening up to me mm-hmm. in the sound of chess voice. You know? I would love to go back to that time because, you know, I mean, you still have periods of discovery and, and, you know, conversation and ferment and all of that. But there's something about, I think that part of, part of your life where everything just feels like, of course, everything feels fresh, but also it yeah. feels like you own it. Yeah. You know, it's like, I found this and I own yeah. it. And everybody's going to hear about it. Which is know? what's so great about, I think, the time we live in now, because there are so many different types of countertenors. Mm-hmm. And, like, what if you're, like, a queer little 14-year-old and, like, you find, you know, Franco Fagioli or, like, Philippe Jaruski. And, like, Philippe Jaruski is so femme to me, you know, his sound. But 
he does Ronaldo and he sings whatever Carasbeme or whatever or uh, what's the aria Ronaldo that's called Carasposa Carasposa you know mm. and the way he does it is the way he does it mm-hmm. and it's just so Philippe <laughs> I'm certain those people are are listening to Swoon. you know this generation of countertenors <laughs> I mean it's it's uh, it's very di- it's very different to when I was there I mean some people are telling me they listen to me now which is a little yeah. weird for me you know no, but it's like but it but it is cool because because in a way that the countertenor world is expanding and has expanded so much since you know even when I was starting um, there's so many new possibilities and so many new role models and um, that, that's super exciting so We'll fast forward a little bit. So you're in the UK doing choral scholar work, and you're developing your countertenor instrument. Who is the conductor um, that heard you and decided, oh, this is good stuff, I want to like bring this guy up? You know? Well, at first, it was the conductor of the choir, Stephen Layton, who, you know, he's been very good to me, and he, actually, my first term in Cambridge, he, he didn't take much notice of me, you know, mm-hmm. and then... At one point in time, he realized that I just kind of have resting bitch face. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think he probably got the impression that I wasn't so satisfied by what was happening. And then when he realized that that was just the way my face is when I'm concentrating, mm. um, he took a real shine to me and started giving me all the verse solos and, you know, made me study with uh, Ola Blum, this amazing Swedish teacher who was just like, honey, you're not a choral singer. You should be doing solo work. And... Um, and, you know, thereafter, I went to the Royal College of Music for a few years, and we had this incredible collaboration with the London Handel Festival, where this, the central uh, opera of the festival every year was conducted by Lawrence Cummings, and the London Handel Festival band would come in and play. And what an opportunity for young students at, you know, an opera training program to be doing a fully staged work with with experts in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lawrence and I got on immediately. Who also conducts at Göttingen? Lawrence is... Uh, yes, the musical director of the Göttingen Handel Festival. Um, and I've worked for him there. I've worked for him in London. I'm all over. He's extremely... He's so giving, and he's so loyal. And, um, you know, he was the first person, I think, who really, truly saw, like, oh, you're a Handelian star, and I need to use you whenever I possibly can. You know, um, it was almost like the first time we worked together... It was really the first opera I had ever sung. Here I was at, you know, on an opera training course, and I'm like, please don't find me out. I, I've only sung choral music and sacred music up to now, you know, and the odd concert. And I was, like, singing a title role in Alessandro, you know. Mm-hmm. But he just had full faith from the beginning. And, you know, here I am years later, and um, now I can actually go and sing those roles with him. And it's like we've come full circle almost. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it went from the point where I was really his student, and now I feel as if I'm, you know, working with him as a peer. So he's been really amazing for my career. And this voice of yours, um, when did you realize that you could do like all this coloratura (laughs) and like you great ornaments and your tone also is rich. It sounds bel canto, uh, but I could also tell that you are a stylist and that you love color and you love to play with vibrato and it's like all the stuff I'm crazy about. Like, Hi, you, you should be writing the blurbs for my website. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, I'm literally, I was blown away by your singing yesterday. Oh, I was, like, really I, I was embarrassed that I didn't know who you were. So. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's a big world out there. Um, sorry, what was the question? Well, I'm just trying to figure out, like, because like, if you're doing this choral singing, right. was like your entrance into this world. Mm-hmm. 
and you have this teacher who's like telling you, oh you're a solo singer mm-hmm. and like how do you what how did you learn to balance like your instinctual way of singing mm. with this more extroverted you know head? yeah you know that's a really good way to put it balancing i mean i feel like the work is never done and it's constant um rebalancing of things and and also i kind of think about it as like very slowly applying layers of paint you know i've mm. i've sort of built up my instrument from what was a very small and precise sound. I mean, it's, I'm a countertenor, so it's never going to be a, a dramatic instrument to, to fill the largest halls, but it's grown in body and I've integrated more chest resonance into the sound over the years. And, um, you know, I think I've, I'm always finding and looking for balance, more balance, more balance. And about coloratura, I don't know. That's a weird thing that kind of just like... Because you don't have to use that chop in your singing Renaissance polyphony. No, not at all. But it's but it's weird because, you know, I, I was always just walking down the street when I was a teen, just kind of doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like one of those weird things that's like, can you roll your tongue in a circle yeah. or... It's just like, and then so we had a flexible glottis. <laughs> yeah, I suppose yeah. you could say that. Yeah. yeah. So I have, of course, worked at it because you know there's certain types of passages that that have um, coloratura at one speed that mm-hmm. it works, you know, with the glottal technique, and then mm-hmm. then there's other coloratura that's more leapy, less conjunct that you know requires me to engage more of the support, and it's a whole different approach. So that kind of stuff I've had to find out by trial and error and stuff. But it, it wasn't like that there, there was like a program of study. It was always just like that was what I was attracted to. People say, oh, my God, your ornaments, they're so amazing. And it's it's less like it's less like I worked super hard at ornamenting and more like I was really drawn to ornamentation mm-hmm. to begin with. In fact, I did my master's thesis on performance practice ornamenting in, in uh, Handel Arias when I was at Cambridge. So that was just something that I was like always geeking out about. Is that so. is that available for somebody to read somewhere? Only, <laughs> it, only wasn't oh, okay. it wasn't published. It wasn't published, but I'm glad <laughs> to furnish you with a copy if you'd like it. <laughs> it was probably pretty stuffy reading, mm-hmm. a lot of transcription. But yeah, it's just it's one of those things that I, I I'm always like again balancing. I, I like to balance my, my my choices in ornamentation between something that's, you know, tasteful and stylish with something that's a bit, you know, dangerous or sexy or jazzy yeah. or something like that. Well, you're an American make, singing in the UK. And, like, mm. my idea of the UK is that it's polite. And, like, mm. I never... I mean, like, I love so many British singers, but I'm never like, oh, they, like, went balls to the walls on this one, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, I feel like, again, I'm trying to marry if you like something about that english precision and restraint and taste with something a little bit more extroverted and edgy at the same time that maybe is more the american side you know how i was brought up so balancing and fusing things together but also like you have a technique that sounds american to me but i could be entirely wrong about that well i think a lot of a lot of i mean i'm I'm not so sure how much of it is technical, but you may be right. I, I think a lot of it has to do with just um, how we use our voice and speech patterns, like where, mm-hmm. our, where our vowels sit and, the you know, the way that we use the oral cavity and mm-hmm. the way that we use our resonators. I mean, I obviously speak with an American accent and grew yeah. up imitating Americans and American style of speech. Yeah. And I think that that does create... Um, it creates a sort of sound that's in common with, with some of the other American characters. Yeah. So you could say the same thing about British singers or what have you. I think it's a lot to do with just where, where you spent your whole development, like placing your voice yeah. and, and, and how, and how yeah. you use it when you sing. And how Italians speak with so much fundamental and how French, oh, absolutely. And French speak with so much head voice. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, that's definitely a thing.
wouldn't you love to be a lay clerk in England and be discovered by some conductor who gives you an <laughs> opera career? George, I thought you were a singer when you were back in England. How come you didn't be get discovered as a boy soprano? <laughs> well, that's because I was singing like at this boarding school that I went to. Oh. It was not a big public thing. I was just... Well, there's a little bit more to this interview. We talk about his career at Pinchgut Opera, and we talk about Handel and some future projects coming up. So there's just a little bit more we'd like to hear after the break. That's right. There's lots more with American countertenor Christopher Lowry. That's next, only in America's talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Thanks again for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. We have the second... Not really a half, is it, Oliver? Because it's, it's the third, fun- third, <laughs> the third, third of Oliver's going inside the huddle with countertenor Christopher Lowry. Tell me about Pinchgut Opera. So one of the productions I didn't go to in um, a production of Faramondo was bought by a now defunct uh, festival in Brisbane, a Baroque music festival. And we went to Brisbane, Australia. Where is this crazy place that they call Bris Vegas, which is yeah. kind of like the Florida of Australia. Um, and I met this amazing young conductor called Aaron Helliard and we instantly fell in love musically. Oh. <laughs> um, and he was just like, you have to come and work for my group in, in Sydney. He, he runs this incredible opera company there called Pinchgut. And we've done something like four or five shows. We worked together with his company in Brisbane, also for the Adelaide Festival. We did Saul there. Um, and over the years, we've just become like, you know, hand and glove col- collaborators. And we do all kinds of things together and always scheming about the next project. Um, and he's just so, he has so much faith in in what I do and, and I just trust everything that he does and it's one of those you know you only have so many relationships like that professionally so right, so you feel like what you do there artistically is really supported yeah I mean it's it could be anything from like whatever tempo that I want to do something at or whether I want to you know if we're doing a pasticcio we did a Vivaldi pasticcio and it was like what kind of arias do you want to add it's up to you or do you want to you know subtract that or would this work in the in the piece um, or Something as mundane as like, oh, do you mind if I sort of write these cadenzas for these duets that we're doing in this this handle uh, this handle oratorio? And his responses are either yes, absolutely, or hmm, I don't know. Let me think about that. And then you know, like the next day, he'll come into rehearsal and be like, I thought about it, and let's do it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and as a singer, I mean, I can't speak for all singers, but for me, when someone's like 
primary, when their default attitude is yes, 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 and more, yes, it's like you want to work for them so badly because there are a lot of people in the industry whose attitude is, oh, no, we, we couldn't possibly, you know, and and their whole shtick is about foreclosing possibility. I want to work with somebody who's, like, open, you know, yeah. and Aaron is extremely open. So we've talked a lot about handle. Can you explain to me why you think you are, at this point in your career, best suited for handle and why we're going to understand the most about your artistry through handle? Well, I think it's just because Handel has like a tune for every occasion and a type of tune for every occasion. That's why I love him and why I've done so many, I think I've done 19, I counted 19 Handel roles, including the ones I did at college. You know, there's, there's something for every voice type. And then within each voice, there's something for every mood that the voice can inhabit. You know, there's the pastoral song. There's the, uh, there's the love song. There's the little ditty, you mm-hmm. know, there's the nature imitation song. There's the lament. There's, there's the triumph aria. There's the martial aria. Yeah. There's the do du- the sexy duets, yeah. you know, there's like, there's just something for every kind of like mood that your voice yeah. is in. Um, and also there's music that's like low and slow, uh, long and slow and, and full of tension and release, which, which I love mm-hmm. to use my voice uh, like that. Um, and there's also music that's incredibly intricate with fireworks. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the last aria in Armenia was this, this crazy piece that's like, you, you wouldn't think it was Handel. So there's a whole, Handel is always sort of out handling himself. Yeah. There's just, <laughs> there's just so much, um, there's so much to discover in his music. And, you know, when you've sung a, a full large role of Handel, he basically has shown off all the things that you can do well as a singer, or at least that's how I feel. It's mm-hmm. like he's he's shown all of my strengths and he's shown my range as well. Um, so that's why I really love singing him. I speak about him like he's here in well, the room, but, you know. Well, Parisians are going to be in for a treat because you are going to be doing Julius Caesar with none other than Karina Govan as Cleopatra and Anne Hallenberg as Sesto. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> when is that? No pressure. Um, in September. We're doing okay. we're doing Cesare three times, one time in Paris, one time at the Ambrenet Festival, and one time um, at a festival in Bucharest, Romania. And we're also doing Agrippina, a largely similar cast. Are you that, Nero that's one, I, No, I'm singing Otone. Okay. Yeah. Because oh, Nero's pretty high, right? Yeah, Nero's out of my... Yeah. That's not... That's not so you're more point. of a contralto. Yeah, I call or... myself like a sort of middling alto. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, middle to high alto. But yeah, I don't really like to sing mezzo stuff and God forbid any of these crazy, you know, bel canto soprano roles that some of these amazing younger... Um, and not so younger, <laughs> um, higher countertenors are singing. Yeah. Sopranistas, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I tip my hat to them. <laughs> and uh, coming up really soon, or this year, is a recording that you did with Christophe Rousset. Yeah, last last year um, I had the opportunity, I've been doing a lot of work with Christophe Rousset recently, um, but last year I had the chance to record a disc with Sandrine Pio, the famous <gasps> French soprano. And Crystal, um, we did. My another... friend likes to say that Sandrine Pio brings the cathedral with her. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. And actually, I'm here to tell you, like having done, we did two tours last year, um, and she really is just that good all the time. You know, yeah. like she's just at recording quality, like from the beginning of the day until the <laughs> end of the day, and you're just like. Are you possessed? <laughs> what deal did you make with a devil somewhere? But no, I mean, she's an extraordinary singer and a fantastic musician and a great colleague. Um, and we had the privilege of recording the Pergolesi Stabat Mater, which I think she recorded once earlier in her career with Gerard Lenn. Um, but we also recorded these 
completely unknown solo cantatas. She did one by Porpora, and I did one by Leo. So I think it's going to be a really exciting disc, and it, it should be out in the next few months. I'm not absolutely certain what the release date is. but What label would that be It's on, on Alpha Classics. Okay. Yeah. So that's the the trick with being a recording artist in this day and age. You have to find repertoire that that the recording companies want to record. You know, that's the that's the whole game. I mean, I'm currently trying to formulate ideas for my first solo recording, and it's and it's like it's all about the concept. You know, you yeah. come to people with a, I want to do another Handel recital mm-hmm. album, and and their eyes sort of glaze over. No, not another one. You yeah. know, even though, you know, you might have a great disc it's it's all about trying to interest people either in new repertoire or in new combinations of pieces something about you know a place or a time or historical event something that you know people can get excited about that feels fresh so well i'm sure everybody's going to know your name any minute now now that i know it (laughs) (laughs) you speak for the world (laughs) i do but i'm really grateful that you took this time out of your busy schedule while you're here um to do this interview and um yeah i'm really looking forward to hearing more about you and following your career from this from this point forward it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you so i think we need a road trip to Champs-Élysées in Paris to hear him sing Julius Caesar with Karina Govan and Anne Hallenberg. You can uh, donate now to our Champs-Élysées yes, fund. Exactly. No, man. You know, you hear, <laughs> we hear these ads all the time on our podcast, like, you know, give us 50 bucks. Yes, please. Give us $5,000. I promise we'll share a room. We'll get an Airbnb. I'll sleep with Toby in the same bed. It's going to be real cute. Yeah. We'll, we'll post yeah. pictures. Yeah, we'll only eat baguettes and oysters, you know. I think oysters are cheaper over there. So. Big thanks to countertenor Christopher Lowry for being on our show. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to tonight. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM. Gentlemen, we are halfway through 2019. Oh, it has just flown Today by. Today is Let the me official calendar middle point. Oh, man. Sort of, if we go by months and not by days. I think we're going to do kind of a half-segment Chalk Talk yeah. here. Yeah. Maybe spill over into the third segment a little halves. bit yeah. about the, the big themes of the year so far in opera if you look at news stories and you had to string a couple different news stories together like what would that theme be and oliver yours yours has many dots mine is gay 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 (laughs) so we started the year you know hearing about yannick nizes again being installed early as the um, artistic director music director of the met and that article came out shortly afterwards in the new york times about him saying hey i'm gay and it's not a big deal you know then we have the continued success of the opera as one, giving visibility to uh, a transgender librettist and a story about a transgender person, which just uh, had its uh, studio recording released last week. Always exciting. Uh, link will be on our website. Uh, we have uh, the Stonewall Opera. We have the continued great publicity for Lucha Lucas, who made her... Friend of the show, Lucha yeah, Lucas. Lucha Lucas, who made her debut at... Uh, Tulsa, Tulsa, I Tulsa, believe. Opera. Tulsa. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, we think of opera and opera audiences as being conservative and white. And, you know, white is an identity, gay is an identity. There's lots of crossover, obviously. But uh, we think generally conservative, you know. Right. Um, and here we have lots of LGBTQ uh, visibility and artists in important places and projects that are being produced by major opera companies. So I think this bodes well 
for larger acceptance of, uh, you know, of everybody. And maybe Pete Buttigieg has a shot if, you know, if Yannick Nizets again <laughs> can be the artistic director of the Met, why can't Pete Buttigieg be the president of the USA? Yeah, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Hey, man, if you can pronounce his last name, I mean, that's like half the battle. <laughs> I know, that's so bad. That really, that is a struggle. And you even listen to NPR and some really, like, intelligent reporters struggle with that last name. You know? yeah. it, it's real tricky because, you know, if you're, if you've got to be a, uh, in politics and your last name, the first syllable is but, <laughs> you, you're already starting at a, a, well, at a difficult place. on the page, it's but. but yeah, it is. It's pronounced but. <laughs> This um, is some high-quality content that we're giving out right now. No, so that's, that's my, that's my uh, theme of 2019, the first half, and hopefully it continues and it leads to Pete Buttigieg at least being like in the last seven. Because, you know, they're going to narrow it down at some point, and I want to see him up there in the debates. Yeah. Weston, what was your theme for the first half of 2019 in opera and classical music? My sort of theme is these uh, clashes between uh, sort of management and labor in the opera world. Um, we have uh, a, a bunch of really high-profile strikes and lockouts kind of all in a row. Um, uh, so currently there's the Baltimore lockout, uh, which is still going on. It began, uh, I believe, uh, at the end, at the beginning of the last month. Uh, and um, the... Uh, there was the uh, CSO here uh, in uh, Chicago, the, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. They were on strike for seven weeks. The last time they were on strike uh, was in 2012, and it lasted two days. Uh, to give you some sort of sense of how nasty these kind of clashes have been, those seven weeks felt like an absolute eternity. And by the Absolutely. end of it, every, everybody was losing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the Chicago Symphony Orchestra management were losing because they weren't making any money. Right. The players were losing because they weren't making any money. Right. And the city of Chicago was losing not just like tourism dollars. Uh, and I lost my performance of Bluebeard's Castle, which is the only thing I had bought tickets for at the CSO. What happened? about it? Seriously, it just, though. It just didn't happen. Well, it, no, but um, you got your money back. Uh, I did get my money back, Not yes. just the CSO players themselves, but actually it trickles down because CSO players were suddenly available for gigs. And they got a lot of the pickup gigs while right. uh, while second tier musicians lost point. That, lost that income. It was it, it's really tricky. Um, uh, and this is of course coming uh, coming off of the big uh, uh, lyric opera orchestra in Chicago strike last at the beginning of the season. Um, th three major sort of clashes all in a row, and they're all notable for being really long, really drawn out. Uh, really nasty, uh, particularly uh, it, with the CSO and um, uh, the Lyric Opera Orchestra uh, in terms of, you know, uh, stuff on both sides. And There's the, a lot it, of recrimination, yeah. especially at Lyric. And that too, and, uh, at the, C the CSO, I think, was doubly notable because everyone else who got involved, you know, mayoral candidates, um, uh, people giving speeches, showing support for uh, for generally the musicians. Oh, that's right. And then Rahm, Rahm Emanuel, yeah, former mayor of Chicago, came in. <laughs> it was it was what a whole hell? mess. It he was came bizarre. In with a bat. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, but but this is all sort of indicative. Of, I think a trend. I, I feel like we're we're hitting. I feel like this happens every few years. 
uh, where there's a big sort of swath of striking up and down in the classical music uh, world. And I feel like this is a trend to keep an eye on. I would not be surprised if we had another high profile uh, lockout or strike before the end of the year. Uh, and certainly um, the repercussions of how nasty these strikes were, how long the results of them are going to have a, an effect for years to come for these particular orchestras. Who else could strike? Well, I not, he's not, I don't think Weston's saying in Chicago. No, not in Chicago. I'm talking about worldwide. Yeah, but like yeah. what what organization could strike? Do we know of any right now that are Who's in up? danger? Because like, yeah. your point, Weston, is like we had these, you know, two strikes in Chicago, the one in Baltimore, but like these contracts are not negotiated every year, right? It's every right. three years, five years, but there's something about the, how the cycle fell. We're on exactly. Watch, everybody. And I, I think we're we're in one of those cycles right now. I, I think that there's, you know, increased worry, uh, particularly uh, with a, a federal administration that's not prone to giving money to the arts in any meaningful way. Uh, there's a much more of a, there's a, a kind of a growing sense among musicians and artists that they're not being paid enough, um, especially given, you know, the excesses, widening inequality. I don't think it's just the classical music world, um, but certainly it's something that will have a great effect on the classical music world and something that we will definitely be keeping an eye on for the rest of the year. After the break, I will give you my trend for 2019 but you're gonna have to wait for it it's only on opera box score on wnur 89.3 fm northwestern evanston chicago live from chicago you're listening to opera box score more right after this Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news and the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Yo, 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 that's what you're listening to tonight. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. You're again. such a tease making the audience wait for your, <laughs> your trend of It's just good radio, Oliver. <laughs> Hit us with your uh, trend for the half year. I'm George Cedarquist, the man to my right, Oliver Camacho. And to my left in Studio One here at Northwestern is Weston Williams. I, if we skipped over the last two weeks, I don't know if I would be saying that this was a trend, but when Stephen Lord was acute, I got to go back even, Stephen Lord, when he first of all sided with another singer, who he's a conductor, with another singer who had been accused of sexual harassment, things really started to get hot and accusatory for Stephen Lord. And then, of course, it was revealed that he himself had significant accusations uh, and... Um, against himself. It's Next sort of thing that, you know, he is out 
at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Stephen Lord is out of Michigan Opera Theater. He is out of Opera Maine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's one in those, uh, this isn't just a trend, I think, for 2019. This is a trend for the past uh, several years, um, you know, who's being uh, me tooed. Uh, really, sort of a a, a culling. Uh, the, the, this one is really uh, the purge. Yeah, the, the purge. Uh, not, not to like make it sound like because uh, these are these are definitely uh, very serious accusations. These are, uh, I think, pretty much everyone who has been accused in the classical music world who I can think of has been pretty solidly, obviously, uh, the the accusations have you know been true. Um, and this is this is definitely you know a matter of you know who's it happening to this week, uh, which is really sort of you know always a bummer to think about. Um, but this this particular one I think is a kind of a, a an interesting one because of the uh, defense of the other person who was uh, who was you know accused first, uh, which is I don't think that's something we've really seen yet. Um, yeah, but that you're not saying this, but right. That was not Stephen Lord's downfall, right? Standing right. behind someone who'd been accused of sexual harassment, that was not his downfall. Stephen Lord's downfall was self-inflicted. Right. Stephen right. Lord's downfall was his own behavior over years and years. Right. And this this is something that uh, is, uh, I, I think, obviously, it's a very important thing to have happen. I, I think this is the... The going through and sort of finding these people who have been abusing their positions of power, I, I think, is a very important and significant thing that's happening in the arts right now. Uh, and it's definitely one of those ones, even though it just happened a couple weeks ago. I do agree with you, George. This is one of the more significant things to happen in 2019 because this kind of thing has been one of the most significant things of the past couple of years. Um, so it's not a trend. It's, it's a reality. Right. It's It's commonplace. I mean, that, I think, is what is so crippling about this you know i go back to david daniels that was a story that broke at the end of 2018 but then at the beginning of 2019 daniels was extradited to texas there was right. no bail I right believe, i believe that's correct that. yes. I, don't, I don't think that story's been resolved right otherwise we would have known no that. i think it's still all, all ongoing i'm sure it'll uh, show up again and we'll talk about it again um but Every time, it's always a bummer, but at the same time, it's progress moving forward. Um, what kind of needs to happen? I know one thing that will not continue in, in 2019. I won't come to the defense of somebody that I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> you, you behaved with a lot of class. Okay, Oliver? Yeah, you were, you were, more, you I were did, mortified I did same, and embarrassed. But I really... did the same thing for David Daniels because like, I have a friend who could literally could not believe these accusations. Like, okay, well, I believe this person, so... Through the transit of property, I believe David Daniels, and I was so so. Well, wrong, so. look, you know these these attackers could actually take a page out of your book, which is to like, you know, own up, apologize. Yeah. Oh, you're, they're, in, they're, you're in a position. I'm just, just saying I can give them advice on how to better sexually harass somebody because I'm because <laughs> definitely not what I'm saying. I'm oh, saying goodness. honesty and openness yeah. and an apology. All right, here we go. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. It's taken a while for composer John Adams' work to gain a foothold in Germany, a country with a uniquely rich opera landscape and tradition, along with a long-standing suspicion of American styles like Mr. Adams' eclectic brand of minimalism, but a wave of new productions in Germany is 
changing that situation. Opera Saratoga's world premiere production of Ellen West opened yesterday. Two themes are extreme weight loss and the related mental conditions to that. Ricky Ian Gordon's score is a setting of a poem by Frank Bidart that juxtaposes journal entries by the title character who suffers from anorexia and clinical observations from her psychologist. Reviews are in for Ian Bell and Mark Campbell's opera Stonewall, which played at New York City Opera last month. We'll get to those in a moment. In an article on the New Music USA website, composer Nabal Mesad wrote that, quote, Western classical music is not about culture, it's about whiteness. It's a combination of European traditions which serve the specious belief that whiteness has a culture, one that is superior to all others. Its main purpose is to be a cultural anchor for the myth of white supremacy, end quote. Heading overseas, the board of La Scala in Milan have named Dominique Meyer of the Vienna State Opera as its next general director in Milan. That's going to start in January 2020. The present chief, Alexander Pereira, whose contract has not been renewed, will actually be allowed a very long 18-month overlap with Meyer. He'll be at the theater until June 2021. The Tchaikovsky competition announced its 2019 winners in the vocal competition. Not a single American won an award. Productions of Mozart's Don Giovanni, directed by Ivo Van Hova, and Verdi's Vigoletto, directed by Bartlett Scher, have premiered in Paris and Berlin, respectively. Those are co-productions with the Metropolitan Opera and will arrive there this coming season. In trading news, Daniel Biaggi, who steered Palm Beach Opera's turnaround during his 10 years as general director, will step down in October. Göteborg Opera has named Henning Brewe as its new artistic director. He comes from the Bavarian State Opera and also... At the BSO, Carmen Janetazio will sing the title role in Bellini's Norma. She replaces Sonia Jancheva. And on this day, July 1st, it's the anniversary of the birth of German tenor Peter Anders in 1891. It's the birthday of Hans Werner Henze in 1926. And in 1933, it was the premiere of Richard Strauss's Arabella in Dresden. That's your two-minute drill. And once again, back on W, and you are it's Opera Box scored George Cedarquist, you, Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams. You've never run out of music before. That was so strange. <laughs> Just a silence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I should have given you a Arabella clip because it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, opera. I love that one. Uh, we should have. I was going to suggest something by it's Hans Werner. It's never done. Yeah. It's never done, Arabella. It's done. They just did it in Canada last season with Aaron Wall. It seems uh, okay, like a really okay. Canadian opera for now, some you, reason. I don't know why. The, the operative word there was it's done in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> you, I'm going to look up when the last time Arabella was Yeah, why don't you do that while Weston talks? Speaking <laughs> of uh, Canada, I just want to say how much of a travesty it is that there are no Americans going forward um, uh, for the Tchaikovsky uh, competition. Uh, the first prize in gold medal. Uh, was given to uh, a, a Grecian man, Alexandros uh, Stav- uh, Stavrakakis. Uh, I'm pronounced, probably not pronouncing that, that well. Uh, second prize was Gihun Kim from Korea. Uh, third prize was Migran uh, Agdagyadnan. No, dear, I'm, I, I'm, I apologize profusely. Uh, a Russian uh, Migran Agadyanyan uh, from Russia. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was basically yeah, correct. Close, yeah. um, but uh, it, it was kind of a little sad. So close. We to don't July win 4th. Tchaikovsky competitions. We win Cardiff. <laughs> we care about the singer of the world. We don't care about some gay <laughs> Russian composer. And yet, and yet, on July 4th, everyone's going to be playing the 1812 Overture. Okay. It's just a travesty. What can I tell you? <laughs> Um, nice one. Yeah, that was my July 4th joke for the day. Um, nice. I think another sort of, uh, uh, I, I think the other one uh, story that sort of caught my eye, um, well, not really story, uh, this article um, 
uh, called uh, It's Time to Let Classical Music Die. Clickbait <laughs> Cl- title. Very clickbaity. I do not like this title. This is the one by uh, Nabal um, Maisoud, um, who... Uh, brought to the forefront the idea that classical music traditionally has been a tool for white supremacy and to promote the idea of uh, whiteness and European uh, music as the sort of um, cultural standard superior to all others. Um, And he raises some interesting points. I can't say I agree with him on every single point, um, because obviously when I read the the title, It's Time to Let Classical Music Die, my hackles go right up, even if I agree with most of the article. Um, But it is something I think that is, this is almost a chalk talk. I feel like we should uh, talk about this a, a, a more extensively, but it's a really interesting thing because I feel like there's a greater consciousness over the past few years of people reevaluating art, uh, particularly uh, music and sort of quote unquote classical art uh, as uh, European art, as something that is uh, inherently colonialist, ex- uh, colonialist rather, uh, exported to the world and creating this standard which is artificial compared to the sort of uh, the actual art um, from the places it's colonializing. And I think that's a, a very fair thing to say. Um, at the same time, though, obviously, I am sitting here on an opera a podcast. Yeah, it's <laughs> actually a really gigantic topic. And it's we huge. probably should discuss it with other people, especially issue. not white people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, I, have a, I actually struggle with this because I'm very conservative in my musical taste. Mm. And so I am like... Part of the problem, you know, like I want to hear Luli, I want to hear Chopin, I want to hear, you know, Mozart, you know, and <laughs> and thank goodness composers like John Adams and um, who is this guy who wrote as one, uh, Laura Kaminsky? Um, yeah. I can yeah. find yeah. it for you in one second. No, oh, yeah. Not a guy. Yeah, yeah. person. Laura Kaminsky. <laughs> With libretto by a friend of the show, Mark Campbell. I assume it's a guy. <laughs> and Kimberly <laughs> Reed. You know, th- that these people are c- telling new stories and creating new operas and et cetera. So there is more inclusion but um yeah like we i mean my tradition the way i fell in love with classical music was through handel through mozart through rossini and i feel like those works you know are the masterpieces of western music and i want to share them i want to lift them up i want to amplify their power you know so i'm the problem yeah, Oops. you're the problem, Oliver. Get rid of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm also the problem. Actually, um, San Francisco Opera did Arabella last fall. Oh, well, so you I'm, are the problem, I'm, George. I blew it on that. <laughs> All right, so t- talk, talk to us about uh, Stonewall Opera, George. Well, Stonewall, so that the libretto is by Mark Campbell. It's composed by Ian Bell, who's a uh, British... Friend of the show. He was one of our original guests. Lovely guy. Uh, it's It's... I don't know. I mean, it's hard to get into this story for me personally. I um, I don't even know how to summarize this article. Well, there's two. There's two there's articles. Two reviews. There's yeah. one by James Jordan, also known as Acheca, uh, in the Observer, mm-hmm. and then there's sort of like the counterpoint, uh, which is on somebody's personal blog called Bryn Solomon. Why don't you talk to us about Bryn Solomon? Uh, Bryn Solomon, if I'm uh, if I have the right article up, um, it. it they uh, they make the point um, that there is well they call it a botched uh, trans casting <laughs> to use the direct uh, quote there um, they uh, they mostly took issue uh, with the uh, company um, 
uh, billing it sort of as uh, uh, having a, a, tra a trans casting. Yeah, inclusive ta uh, uh, casting. Uh, they have a, a trans uh, woman, trans man. Uh, sorry, I need to look at the <laughs> look at the article. Uh, it, it is my computer is uh, uh, failing on me. Uh, okay, cool. Yes. Uh, so they cast a trans man named Liz Book to play a trans woman. Uh, and their objection to that was the fact that, um, uh, well, he, here's the quote directly from the article. Quote, it's difficult to convey how bizarre this casting choice is. It's like they wrote a character who's a lesbian, cast a gay man to play her, and then boasted of writing a homosexual character for a homosexual actor. End quote. Uh, it, it, it is kind of an, an odd choice. And have, not having listened to the opera yet, I can't. Under, I can't say why they made that choice necessarily, um, but they they bring up that it's very uh, problematic to to uh, cast uh, to mis essentially the the casting to to this person who wrote this article is like a misgendering of the actual person who was there, um, and it's it's very tricky. However, they do call him a, a fine singer who fits in well with a cast. Um, but it's it is it does get tangled up in those sort of gender politics, um, and you would think that an opera that would invite those sorts of gender politics uh, would be a little bit more conscious of that sort of thing. Well, here I here I am defending people I barely know, but you know it sort of feels like the circular firing squad of the Democratic Party as we decide who <laughs> our nominee is going to be. It's like we're all on the same team, and you know we have a relationship with Mark Campbell, we have a relationship with Ian Bell. And you know we feel like we we know that they they have really good intentions, and whoever casts this thing, maybe that's an oversight, you know. And I should not be speak. I just said I was going to stop doing this, you know? but um, we're we just going to have a segment where you're just like <laughs> where we just hear you like putting shoes into your mouth. <laughs> uh, but it, it is it is I think a valid criticism, um, and one that uh, as more and more uh, operas about trans characters with trans singers uh, comes around, it's something that we're going to have to start thinking about more, especially when it comes to uh, vocal types and uh, what suits what and. Um, uh, this was something we talked about a little bit in our interview with uh, Lucia Lucas a few episodes ago. I highly recommend all our listeners go and check that out. Uh, it's it, it's a tricky thing when uh, so much of opera and classical music is so gendered um, in the way it's all laid out that often you just don't think about these things until they're happening in the moment, even with uh, even with things that should be progressive, you know. Uh, definitely a tricky issue. Uh, probably another one that involved that should be a whole talk talk. Um, but uh, I'm right, gonna yeah. I'll make it simple with a little John Adams stat. Oh, oh, thank you, you for saving gonna, us with the John I'm Adams. Gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> data save saves the day. The the article in the New York Times is about John Adams and the prominence now of his work in Germany. Here's the stat: the number of Adams stagings in Germany from 2014 to 2020. Okay is the same as the number of stagings from 1989 to 2014. Wow. Look yes. at Johnny Go. <laughs> it's like climate change. <laughs> it's, it's getting... <laughs> Yeah. It's getting worse. You're saying there's more John Adams stages. Are you are you dissing John Adams? No, I'm in just saying it's like it's more intense in my and house like, <laughs> and more frequent. You know, like hail in Mexico City. Where's that? Oh you know? God, that was such a weird story. Okay, we have to go to good good call, bad call. Yeah, we got to do that. <laughs> because of the hail. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks again for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR. 
Star, 89.3 FM. That's where Opera Box Score lives and breathes. All right, good call, bad call. I got a good call. I'm in the middle of a five-day Doll Crows workshop, and I've been Ooh, practicing eurythmics and solfege. Oh, and it's absolutely kicking my butt. Hmm. <laughs> it's been a long so time since you were a little boy singing in well, the uh, a bit choir of there. So a bit yesterday, today's July 1st, uh, even though you might listen to this on July 3rd or whatnot, yesterday was World Pride. The Metropolitan Opera had a float. Anthony Roth Costanzo rocked it. But Stephanie Blythe did this. Oh, let, let, yeah, let's, hear, let's hear some of this. This is uh, a delight. So there was just... Yeah. Um, that is Stephanie Blythe yes. on a float, <laughs> belting the pride. <laughs> it's so good. She's yeah. wearing a rainbow wig. You have to check out this video. It yeah. is a delight. That's easy to find on the Facebook, everybody. So yeah, thank you very much, Stephanie Blythe, for doing that for all of us. <laughs> for all of for Oliver specifically. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Samil Songvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com. O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabass.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score, and please leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Christopher Lowry, along with co-host Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera on the beach this Independence Day weekend. It's coming up. We're back on Monday, July 8 at 9 Central. More opera, more hot takes, more hot dogs. Join us. This is WNUR FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. <laughs>